everybody. Welcome back to our podcast, Breathe Underwater. I am April Salazar. I am Whitney Waddell. And we are very, very excited to have today our guest, Jorge Salazar, the Hopkins trained surgeon, I might say, is the McGovern Distinguished Chair and Professor and Chief of Pediatric and Congenital Heart Surgery at Children's Memorial Hermann Hospital with UT Health, Houston. He is also the Executive Director of the Houston Children's Heart Institute, and he is also my husband and partner of 16 beautiful, shiny years. Welcome. Amen to that. (laughs) Thanks for having me. We're so excited to have you. And if you're just joining us or uh, meeting us for the first time, our mission here on our Breathe Underwater podcast allows our audience a judge-free space that provides hope, a golden nugget, or a takeaway to those who have experienced adversity, tragedy, or some, some kind of trauma. We like to explore, in particular, when that key moment in your life occurred where you knew you could begin to heal. What was that turning point where you knew you were going to be okay? April and I have lived through chaos, and we have experienced our own personal trauma that translate, translates as our cross to bear. It's time for us to share how we have learned to breathe underwater and embrace the chaos making it a part of us. That's beautiful. It is. Every time I hear that mission statement, I just, like, I'm like, wow. It's (laughs) it's pretty powerful. It's very legit. Yeah, it is. It is. So. If you don't mind me saying. (laughs) We don't. We welcome it. So I know that you probably have personal trauma of your own because I like to say, and you will hear this, it's a little redundant, but we all have a cross to bear. And there are some you know, personal issues that we can all, I think, pull from our soul and and discuss. Definitely. But today, I thought it would be an interesting angle to talk with you about what it's like as, if I do say so myself, and this can be Googled and researched, what it's like to be probably one of the number one heart surgeons, pediatric heart surgeons in the world, and even more so what it's like in those moments when these very vulnerable, very emotional, very distraught moms hand over their newborn babies and tell you, I need you to please make sure my baby doesn't die. And we, we had a lovely conversation with one of your former moms and she only had a lot of really good things to say. Thank goodness, goodness, because if not, we have some conversations here. But, um, but I just thought it was so powerful for her to share her story, and in particular about the interactions she had with you. So, yeah, I would, I would like to explore that with you. Um, just really quickly, how long have you been in practice? This is my nineteenth year. I did 10 years of training and then 19 years of practice. Okay, so nice and seasoned. Hard to believe, right? Yes. <laughs> did you always know that you were going to work with babies? No, I didn't. Uh, actually, when I went to college, I wanted to be a mathematician. <laughs> and I wanted to teach. And uh, I wanted to hunt and fish and live in the country. Uh, but then as I got older, I started to realize what my potential was and maybe what my skill set was. And as you mentioned, our own personal traumas help us relate to, empathize with those of others. 
And so I thought probably the best way for me to give back was to help other people. And so I decided to go to medical school. But I didn't really know much about pediatrics at the time, and I didn't have any kids of my own. So when I got to medical school, my eyes were opened in a big way, and I got attracted to heart surgery in particular. And then during my training at Hopkins, I got exposed to pediatric heart surgery, and I started having kids of my own. And so as a father and as a human being, I grew up a little bit. Mm-hmm. And Thank re- you for that, by the way. I'm working on it. Your every, wife every appreciates it. <laughs> And I think as you get older and you start experiencing things on your own, it makes you, well, it either makes you cold, either hardens your heart or mm-hmm. it makes you open. Mm-hmm. And I think I chose open. Mm-hmm. And so as I started encountering my patients, you know, the patients, the families, the children, if they were the patients, I started identifying with them more and more at, a, at an emotional level, as a parental level, at a, maybe even as a philosophical or even religious level. And I just had this internal drive to help them. And I ended up choosing a specialty that worked for me and something that I can do. And I just sort of applied those principles to the care of those kids, but also the parents. You know, as a parent myself, I couldn't help but identify with them. And so that's sort of where it, where, where it all came from. So it's a long story, but that's, that's, that would be the introduction. No, I think that, well, number one, you know, babies in particular are such fragile, um, innocent, you know, raw little human beings. And so for somebody like you to fall into, because it wasn't planned, but to fall right. into this role of caring for them, I think is quite special. And I think it's also quite difficult. Um, I have children. We have children of our own. Yes, we do. And I can tell just by the way they cough or the way that they run down the hall, what's going on with them. Mm -hmm. So I'm very connected to them in that sense. And you have to look at the connection between these moms that bring their babies to you who have this like this death mark on them because correct me if I'm wrong, but without heart surgery or without your intervention, they will die. In the vast majority of the cases that I care for, um, the diagnosis is lethal. And if I don't intervene, the babies will die. That is true. So you get into this role. I should say, if I don't intervene successfully. Right. That's true. Yeah. You fall into this role. You're excited about operating on babies' hearts. And just giving the audience a little bit of... um, kind of understanding of what you do every day mm-hmm. about how large is the average heart that you operate on in terms of size? Like, can you give us a fruit or a nut or some kind of something that us people who do not have medical background or training can just understand better? Yeah, it's about the size of um, of an acorn. Okay. Maybe a walnut. And in, in, a, in a newborn. In a newborn. And then, of course, it gets bigger. Usually, if you look at the patient... And you have them make a fist, you know, and you know what a little baby's fist looks like. Mm. That's the size of their heart. Uh, and so and some, some of the hearts are a little bit bigger because they're in heart failure, but they tend to be pretty small. Okay. So you're in this specialized role of caring for these very, very small hearts. I mean, in looking back in all of the patients you've cared for, because, I mean, how many is that? How many babies have you 
operated on? I mean, I probably operated on five or six thousand. I've probably taken care of about ten thousand. Okay, so that's a lot of ba- a lot of families, it's a lot of babies, a lot of moms, a lot of mamas. Let's just recognize because Whitney, <laughs> you know, has a lot of experience being a mom. I have a lot of experience being a mom. Jorge interacts with a lot of moms. Mm-hmm. Looking back, I'm just going to throw this out there to kind of get our conversation rolling. Do you ever remember a specific moment where there was a mom that came to you and just like she was just she knew that nothing was going to turn out well. Like she was just like I don't I don't care what you say to me. It's not going to work out. My kid's going to die. I don't even understand what's going on cuz having spoken with Caitlin before, she had she had hope. She was still worried as we should be. Mm-hmm. But she she was like I'm going to pull through this and then of course after speaking with you then she had even more hope but I wonder in your career is there like a moment where you just had somebody and you looked at them and you're thinking to yourself no it's actually going to be okay like don't be so distraught did that ever occur so the short answer is no um, I have never met a mother that didn't believe that there should be a solution amazing because mother's instincts are so powerful and I'm sure you've talked about that before I do think that some mothers have been influenced by the message that they've received from others to be much more worried, to be much more scared, and maybe to doubt whether there is hope or not. Mm. Because, you know, mothers are experts at being mothers, and they're experts in the strong instinct and connection that they have with their child, as you know. But they're not necessarily experts at pediatric heart disease. And if the quote-unquote expert comes and tells them, there's no hope. You should consider, you know, a, having an abortion essentially, Oof. or terminating the pregnancy because that does happen. Okay. And if if one of those experts comes to them with the, you know gray hair and a white coat or you know whatever the equivalent is of an experienced physician, um, it's hard not to take that seriously. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the families that come to me, it's because they've made a decision for hope, and they it's not that they don't want to believe what they've been told. But they just want to make sure that it's really true. And so I think over the years, the word on the street about me is that I can usually find a solution. And a lot of it is because I believe that a solution exists. And I don't necessarily know what it is at the outset, but as a parent, and based on my own experience watching my own children be born and seeing that profound connection between mom and baby, and if you don't mind, I'll tell a little anecdote about that, but based on that experience, I believe that there has to be a solution. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that if you don't believe that there's a solution, then there isn't. And there isn't, yeah. But if you believe there's a solution, then most of the time there is. Yeah. And I think it's applicable to a lot of a lot of things in things life. In life. I agree. Yeah. So I think that's impressive. And I was kind of setting you up for that because I agree. I think most moms are just so focused on everything turning out great Mm -hmm. and working out that they're going to do what they can to protect their child. Mm -hmm. I would even take it a step further. I think they would do whatever is necessary to make sure that their child does well. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not going to say something extreme like they would kill, but maybe they would. would. I probably would, would, you know, do something very, to to protect my child. Absolutely. Murder. So (laughs) the anecdote I wanted to tell you is actually when our eldest child was born, Scarlett. Yes. And shout when, out when Scarlett was born and you connected with her mm-hmm. and I witnessed this and I'm going to get goosebumps just thinking about it. <gasps> the 
the profound connection that I saw between you and Scarlett when she was born, it was overwhelming. And even that noise that you made, it came from your soul. And I don't even know if you realize the noise that you made. You, you have said this story before. So I think we need to actually try to simulate the noise because most people are like, wait, what are they talking okay, about? Okay, go ahead and simulate away. I think maybe April should simulate because I think she knows what it, it is. It was like a little cooing. Because I remember when I saw her. So for those of you who do not know my story, my first child was born. I mean, she was due Ju June 20th. And we were induced May 17th. So it was like very early and she was very little. And I had a, I had some experience understanding what my husband does. And I was scared out of my mind. And I was one of the moms that was thinking, oh my goodness, my child's going to be born. Sh she's not going to be able to breathe. She's going to die because we had to stay, I, had, I was on bed rest, I had pre-ruptured membranes, I was in the hospital, they were taking me down and checking my amniotic fluid every day, making sure that I had enough fluid to sustain her, making sure that she was moving. She had to pass all of these little tests, and if she passed them, then that gave me another day with her inside of me, and I was a strong believer that the best place for her was to continue to stay inside of me mm -hmm. to the point where I think the OB and I were very upset with each other because she just wanted to get her out and get her assessed and get her growing. And I'm like, she's growing just fine inside of my body and we just have to keep the fluid in. So fast forward and it's time for her to be delivered. And I don't know, I just, when she was born, I remember seeing her and I think that the sound went along the lines of, and I have a little raspiness, but it was like, <laughs> <laughs> was it was it like that? It was like a little I mean cooing. It, it, it was louder than that. Well, I'm not gonna scream this this birthing coo. But it was like coo. something that came from your soul. It was a birthing coo. Let's just okay. call it a birthing coo. Okay. And I'm sure that OBs that deliver babies every day, they must see this. But I could. I, I was did. profoundly affected by it because I'm very connected emotionally to my children. Mm -hmm. But it was on that day that I realized that a mother's connection, my wife, and now as a mother's connection to the children, is even stronger. Yeah, I and remember it because I think I cooed with all my kids, <laughs> and it was just like, a Ooh. I think you did, and I and it, that actually really changed me as a heart surgeon, as a oh. you know someone who cares for other people's children that it made me reevaluate the relationship I had with the moms because I already had an instinct about that, you know, that, that frankly the moms had this, this amazing connection and that it was something that I respected. But it just reinforced it, experiencing it with my own children and seeing basically how mom's instincts are almost always right about their children. And this is, you know, something the moms of my patients have heard me say a million times, plus my, my team, is that the moms are almost always right. You just mm -hmm. need to listen to them. I agree with that, mm -hmm. actually. And they may not know exactly what's wrong. But they know but something's they know wrong. Something's they know wrong. something's wrong. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And so this is why I listen, and believe it or not, this is actually why I give every single mom my cell phone number. Mm. Yeah, we, we heard about that, and we heard about some of the things that you, um, you know, say to your moms and to your mm -hmm. parents. And we were both a little in shock because we hadn't heard that before mm -hmm. 
And I, like, we were just saying as, like, a healthcare professional, that's just unheard of. Like, no doctor that I see as a patient has ever given me their personal cell phone number. Well, I think it's because, sure, I'm a doctor, but I'm a doctor second. Mm -hmm. I'm a parent first. Mm -hmm. And I'm a human being. And so I identify with these parents. I do. It's deeply personal for me and for my team. In fact, we've we've constructed our ent- our entire team around this concept that it's personal. Is this something that's a common practice in heart surgery, or do you think this is very specific to you and your team? Uh, I don't know um, okay. because I haven't lived in everybody else's shoes, but I, I do think that our particular expression of that personal commitment might be unique. Okay, I think it's very tangible. It's very palpable, and I think it's very accessible to the families. So, you know, sure, we were all professors and ivory tower and the white jackets and all that. But I think we purposely put that aside to make ourselves accessible and identify with the families at a human level and not necessarily at at an academic or institutional level. And if there's any secret sauce to what we do, it's because it's personal. Mm -hmm. And I actually think the reason why our outcomes are so good is because it's personal Mm -hmm. and the reason why we're able to find solutions for problems that have basically been turned down by every other center in the United States or even in the world is because of that. Mm-hmm. It's because we're not motivated by ourselves. And as you've, as you've heard me say in other situations, it's because we realize that it's not about us. Mm-hmm. It's not about me. It's about the babies and mm-hmm. it's about the parents. And once you get over yourself, whatever it is that you're, you know, wrapped up in that has to do with yourself but once you get over yourself and realize that it's not about you then it's like your eyes open up and the heavens open up Uh, that's that's a very special um way to i think approach life in the medical field from what i understand most surgeons bedside manners are just not there They're, they're really just focused on what needs to get done it's almost like a cattle line, you know, they just kind of push people through. So I, I appreciate that. And I think all of the moms appreciate that. Well, and if you don't mind me interrupting, I know a lot of surgeons where that is not true. Okay. I know a lot of surgeons. I'll make sure to let Caitlin and Whitney know then. It's personal. <laughs> well, no, no, I just think in, her, in their experience, in my experiences, it's just been, it's never been personal. But I think, I think when you're talking about your program and your team and, and the what you've created, you've cre- you created a, a situation where people are now vested, mm-hmm. like they're they bought it. That that's when we talk about that golden nugget, right? Your little takeaway, your takeaway, their hope. You've created that culture, so mm-hmm. they've bought into it. So what we did is we take away we took away the distractions that usually cause you to focus on other things, mm-hmm. and we kind of have all that controlled for or to sort of taken care of, and that way we can enable people to express why they went into medicine in the first place because most people went into medicine in the first place because they want to help patients Mm -hmm. and they want to give back to humanity right because we're all so lucky you know our obligation i think is to give back so if you take away those distractions and help people kind of transcend that then you can uncover what their true potential is it's kind of like us uncovering the true potential of the babies that we serve because they have these limitations on the outside of them i'm sorry there's a little personal philosophy here but they have these limitations that are imposed on them externally, but inside of them, to use your term, is that golden nugget. And so our job is to allow that to be expressed. Well, it turns out in terms of the program management and how I lead it or structure it, it's the same thing. 
My job is to structure things so that people can express their true potential, that diamond, that gold, that, you know, mm-hmm. what I like to call true genius. Mm-hmm. So I, um, on our on our other show with Miss Keaton, she said that you said something to her that I've never heard before, having been with you for 16 years. So I learned something new. But she said he, the surgeon, Dr. Salazar, wanted to visit with Luke to kind of get a sense of who he was essentially as a person. And I just, that struck me because clearly babies are babies. I mean, we, we, nobody's going to argue that. But I was very curious in what that meant to you and how that trans- translates into your operative field. What, what is your motivation behind wanting to meet the baby and get a sense for who they are? I mean, that, that just sounds, that sounds very um, just uncommon. Well, I'm assuming that she was referring to the few days after he was born. Yes, before I operated after on he him. was born. Yeah, that sounds like something I would say. So, you know, we mistakenly think that everything in life is rational and that everything in life is logical. And even though I was raised that way and I was a mathematician because that's what I did in undergrad before I went to medical school, I have learned... That's my therapy coming out. I have learned over many, many years of being alive now that there's much more to life than just raw, logical reason. And I've learned that there's all sorts of different types of intelligence and all sorts of inputs that I get from the system around me, which is the world and people and human beings and everything, that if I pay attention to them, I can actually understand at a very mu- at a much more profound level and therefore know what I can do, what I should do, and most importantly, what the baby wants. Okay. And something that you probably have heard me say is that we need to get over ourselves and put aside our own preconceived ideas and listen to what the baby wants mm. because it's not about me. It's about the baby. And so to get to your question... Yeah. The reason why I like to see the babies before I operate on them is because I can feel them. Interesting. I can feel them based on how vigorous they are, based on what kind of support they need, based on their physiology, based on their monitoring. And all of that adds up to all these like millions of inputs that come into my computer, my brain, but also connected to my heart. And I can feel how strong the baby is, whether or not they're going to tolerate the full repair versus mm. I should do it in stages. And... I guess I've learned that the power of linear processing and raw intelligence has limitations. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And that's something I've actually learned with you. Maybe that'll be a different podcast. I was just going to say, I actually think life is irrational. I'm one of those people who are just (laughs) like, nothing makes sense, but we we have a lot of control and we can kind of control what we can and just... So I'm in this unusual situation where I do agree that life is chaos and it's filled with millions of variables that are very erratic. They're all over the place. But for me to interact on that system, for me to interact on that chaos, I have to be I have to be able to distill it down into some essence, mm-hmm. you know, some essential understanding of what it is because I can't interact with or or implement some change on chaos 
unless I know what the what the result's going to be. Mm-hmm. Right. So by me knowing the baby, by me feeling the baby, by me being around the baby and the family for mm-hmm. that matter, it's like my associative thinking skills kick in. This is where emotional intelligence is so important. Mm-hmm. And if you marry that with your more linear processing, with your more you know traditionally mm-hmm. what what's thought to be intelligence. Yeah. Well, and then your experience too. You marry all those things together. So you take all the infinite data points, you bring them into your brain. There's some sort of, you know, artificial intelligence calculation that goes on. that happens. But then what's different about me is I have to actually act Mm -hmm. and do something. I have to actually intervene on the chaos. And so it's a little bit different situation than being a participant or maybe an observer of the chaos. I actually have to try to change reality for the good. And so to do that, I take all of those different forms of processing, you know, emotional, intellectual, parallel, et cetera, and marry that with my experience. And then most importantly, inject it with what I would want for my own child. Mm-hmm. It's something you've heard me say before, and I, I know my, my, my patients' families have heard me say before, is that I just treat the kids like my own because I know what I would do. Just like you said, you'd kill for your child. Oh, I would. Well, I know what I would do for my own child if they had that problem. Yeah. If they had that heart defect, if they were born with half a heart, if they were born with scrambled heart syndrome. I know what I would want for my own child. Mm -hmm. So I channel that father, inner father in me, and I take, you know, whatever gifts God's given me and, you know, use my brain, like or use my head, like my dad used to say to me, and I apply that to that particular chaos. Yes, we have a, a glorified assembly line of sorts and the fact that we operate in a lot, you know, seven, sure. 800, 900 kids a year, but we individualize it to each child. And that's based a lot on instinct, a lot based a lot on common sense, but most importantly, based on I'm a father and I know what I would do for my own child. So I actually ask the parents permission because when we get in there, things are so complex. You don't always know what you're gonna do until you actually get in there. And I say, you know, if it's okay with you, I'm just going to do what I would do for my own son or for my own daughter. Mm -hmm. And that's actually one of the things I've noticed relieves them the most. Right. Because when they hear that their surgeon is going to treat this child, their child, their most precious, you know, Well, you're very relatable. The godlike syndrome is taken out of the equation, and I think they can relax into that. Yeah, I think I was going to say, like, you leveled the playing field for them, right? Like, you are both playing on the same mm-hmm. team. You are working together, and you've created that hope. So you, the God complex of that's my surgeon, you know, is gone. You've well, I think the God complex gets in the way. Oh, 100%. I think and, so. You know, mm-hmm. Anytime. I don't think you're a God. There you go. I'm just kidding. Any, anytime <laughs> you start, you I know, maybe like one. I love God. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> anytime you start wanting to get you know, cocky or thinking that maybe you're all that, then, you know, you're, you're slapped back into reality. It's well, yeah, you distraction. Get, you get way too comfortable. If that's your, um, if that's where you're at and that's the space you're living in, you're way too comfortable. And if you're too comfortable, you're in the wrong space. In the wrong space. Well, and if you're doing something simple every day, well then sure, maybe you can get a God complex and get away with it. But this is hard. This no, is these, like, these maybe babies the are going to die. Specialty in medicine and not to take away from my, my colleagues, but the, the babies are so fragile. They're they're like little tiny hummingbirds. You know, you just blow on them the wrong. You just look at them the wrong way and they die. Yeah. So you know, obviously that's unacceptable. So I really need to stay focused and in the zone all the time. Understanding that you're taking this child, right? That these parents are entrusting 
their newborn baby with entrusting their life with you mm. in the moment where you first meet the families and you first talk to the mom or you first talk to the dad i would assume the mo- the mothers tend to be more vocal and tend to be more focused um in that but it could be i could be wrong but in in that moment when you're interacting with them for the first time they've just come to you after having gone through a diagnosis of a very difficult uh, scenario that their unborn child has a lethal diagnosis and unless you intervene they will die mm. and nothing is 100 percent. i mean correct me if i'm wrong but i think you have the lowest mortality mortality rates in the world and you also accept the most comp- complex cases so i think that's um, amazing but when you're interacting with these parents for the first time and these moms are trying to hold it together and they are literally about to explode from the overwhelming stress and emotion and just pressure that they have because of the fear that's been instilled in them. What is that like? What is that existence, that space? What is that like for you? Well, you can imagine year 19, it's different than it was in year one. And mainly because like I know what I'm getting myself into. Okay. And I've developed, um, I don't know, techniques, but I've developed ways of communicating with the families so that I can get to the, sorry to use the word again, to the essence of the issues Mm. up front. Mm -hmm. And what used to take me a while, maybe an hour, in talking with a family, now I can do in three minutes. Mm. Because just put yourself in the shoes of the parents. That's a very hard place to be. I, I, I can't even imagine. I think these moms are, are warriors. So No, they are. And some of the most impressive people I've ever known. But if I put myself, if I put myself in the shoes of the parents, what would I want? And that's what I think about. So number one, I just want to know one thing. Is my baby going to be okay? Mm-hmm. That's all I want to know. And I've never met a parent where that wasn't number one on their list. I mean, for you, there's no guarantees in life. Mm -hmm. And I know you. I think you're going to do the best that you can. And you have a lot of experience. But to tell them, even before you've stepped in the operating room, that everything's going to be okay, is that more of a philosophical statement because you actually don't know? Or is that more, uh, you know, because, heaven forbid, something goes wrong Mm -hmm. and the baby dies they're still going to, in quotes, be okay. But are you telling them literally, like, everything's going to be okay, your child will live? Or are you just being more general, like, I think everything's going to be fine despite the circumstances? Well, I'm very specific with the families. And, you know, not only am I legally obligated to be, but I think I am morally as well. Mm -hmm. So, no, I tell them, I tell them exactly what we're dealing with. But I also tell them what I'm able to do, what my team's able to do what's capable. And yeah, as you know, fear of the unknown is the worst. False evidence appearing real. Fear fear of the unknown is is so scary. And so I try to frame the conversation with the families based on, you know, now 19 years of experience so that they know how afraid to be. Mm. Because you're going to be afraid. And I, I tell every family, it's so normal to feel the fear, panic, distress, like you just want to crawl out of your own skin. But it's nice to know, well, 
how afraid do you really need to be? Mm -hmm. Because if I tell you that there's a 0% chance that your child's going to survive, well, that's pretty devastating. Mm -hmm. If I tell you it's 50-50, I think you should be terrified. That's hard, yeah. But if I tell you my my personal success rate over 19 years is greater than 99%. It's pretty damn good. You're still going to be scared, though. Yeah. I mean, I would be scared. But you don't want your surgeon... You don't want a surgeon that's playing to lose. Right. You want a surgeon who's playing to win for your child. Right. Mm-hmm. And so just like anything else, if you go in thinking you're going to fail, well, then you probably are. Yeah. So my job is to pull the rabbit out of the hat. Mm-hmm. And despite desperate circumstances where, you know, let's say 10 other programs or 10 other centers or 10 other whatever have decided based on their preconceived ideas, that there is no hope. My job is to find the diamond, find the golden nugget, and pull it out mm-hmm. from the chaos mm-hmm. or the desperate circumstances. And, and we say it all the time that my job is to pull the rabbit out of the hat. You yeah. do it every single day on every single patient. And you could imagine that that could get a little bit heavy after a while, but... Like many things in life, I think it's really about making a decision for hope and to act on faith. And not delusional faith and not delusional hope, but nonetheless, if you're going to rescue children and help these parents from certain death, like they've already fallen off the edge of the cliff. Yeah. No, it's already already devastating use. They're they're already, you know. So my job is to figure out a way without a parachute and without any wings and without a helicopter to still rescue that child. And the amazing thing is, and I can, you know, I tell you this in year 19, that you can almost always find a way. But you have to go in believing that you can find a way. And I can't really explain, oh, what mysterious, you know, magic happens. I, I don't really know how to explain that. But I know that when I go in knowing that I can find a way and believing it, despite my own fears, because I'm mm-hmm. a human being too, and I, I feel fear every day. But I put that aside for the sake of the child. And, you know, we meet families after they've had the diagnosis in the womb, but maybe equally devastating is when it's a surprise. Mm. And they're either being discharged from the nursery or they've gone home and they've gotten very, very ill and they come back as an emergency to the emergency room. Oh, goodness. Yeah. You know, literally half, half alive or half dead. And those families are traumatized maybe in a slightly different way. But mm-hmm. ultimately... I put myself in their shoes and they just want to know if their baby's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And then they want to know that somebody's there that's got it. Right. You know, like when you tell somebody, I've got With this. You're back. Yeah. yeah. You have their back. So they, they want to know that not just me, but my team, that we've got this, that, you know, with, we can look them straight in the eye and with 100% sincerity say, we got this. This is what we do every day. And I know it's terrifying, but we're going to be there with you. Here's my cell phone number. We're going to hold your hand through the whole process. And I will be relentless, just like my wife is relentless for our children. I love that word, by the way. <laughs> uh, I think that's your word. But wow. we will be relentless for your child. And then, of course, you back it up. Yeah. So I, I have a question. because you, t- you were talking about um, fear, like you're mm-hmm. fearful every day. So I think this is probably a weird statement, but like, practicing in the emergency room like it's not heart surgery by any means but it's scary because you don't know what's rolling through the door at any moment 
you know, it could change. I was always comforted by my fear. Every day when I got there, I was scared. I never let anybody know I was scared. I, I was scared. Are you comforted by your fear? Well, I think fear and suffering keep me human. Mm. And I've learned to embrace that. And, you know, it is true that occasionally there's a baby that we can't save. It's not very often, but, you know, I'm sure April will remember. I don't talk about the names or the details, but <clears throat> she'll see how it affects me. Right. And you can imagine that there's a part of you that wants to almost insulate yourself from that because it hurts. Mm -hmm. It's like getting punched in the gut really, really hard, but like punched in your soul. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to describe it, but I think you know what I mean. And so I've forced myself to exist in that moment and feel it. Mm. Look and at it right in its face. You gotta look it's at important. it right in the eye in a very existential way mm -hmm. where I actually go into the room and I sit with the family with their baby who's already passed away. And I don't talk, this is maybe one of the first times I've ever talked about it, but mm. I sit in the room with them and they may want to talk, they may not want to talk. Usually they don't. Mm -hmm. They just want to be there. Mm -hmm. And I don't usually even say anything, but I think me experiencing the pain is very important mm. because it, it keeps me human and it motivates me so much more to, uh, to help mm -hmm. because it's, it's almost like, um, it's like you're desperate to help. And by me maintaining that emotional connection with each baby that I care for and each parent, because I love my children so much, like my heart aches for them. Mm -hmm. And you know, I think every parent knows what that means. But by not insulating myself too much, not hardening my own heart, to, you know, the occasional, thankfully, occasional um, outcome that's not what we wanted, it makes me better. And let's say it's 1% of these children, and we accept all the kids that nobody else takes, but let's say 1% of the children don't make it. Well, sometimes I just want to lay in bed and stay there for a month because it, it's devastating, mm -hmm. and I feel it. Mm -hmm. I really feel it. No, it's hard. But I think about the other 99% of the children mm -hmm. because those kids are going to die if we don't do something. Mm -hmm. right. And so myself, my team, the other surgeons, the doctors, the nurses, everybody, we band together to be able to help these kids. And that's the magic of it is that it actually works. Kids that were thought to have no hope, to have no solutions, to basically to be already dead, they're at home doing fine right now. Yeah. And the parents send me pictures every day. Mm-hmm. Very cute. From 19 years ago. Yeah. And, you know, from last week. Mm -hmm. So it's it's something that motivates you at such a profound, I'll even say spiritual level. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I do believe in God, and I, I really believe that, that part of this is God's work. Um, it just makes you want to do more. I think that this kind of experience that you have, right, it's a very special it's a very specific kind of experience a very specific world that you live in to kind of have the hold all the reins in your hand have the power and I know it's a team effort but mm -hmm. at the end of the day if you cannot operate on that child it doesn't really matter what pre-op and post-op does because mm -hmm. if the surgery doesn't work the surgery doesn't work so this kind of I don't want to call it a trauma but this kind of like um war 
this kind of mm-hmm. just daily war that you have to experience personally where you are having to look at look at your faith you are having to look at your experience you are having to look at the philosophy of things you are you know everything that you've just talked about I would imagine that it has changed you Mm -hmm. over time. And I would imagine that the person that you once were is kind of no longer present, even though it's probably your core and your foundation. How does being in that, that space of war of just daily, you know, blood and guts and open heart surgery and, and, and moms crying and, families on edge and your team just you know on high alert and just a very specialized intense field how has that shaped you as a man well i think more than anything it's made me a better human being and it's made me a better man no doubt and i think that my continued openness to learning and maybe morphing myself to respond to the reality around me, whether it be medical or personal. Um, it just leads to you being a better person. Kay. And I think maybe most importantly, less selfish. Because, uh, you know, I grew up pretty much thinking everything was about me. <laughs> I did. Don't we? I feel like that's I feel general. like that's everybody. I mean, it's, it's maybe a human condition. It is. But well, at least based on our children, they're a little, <laughs> a little egocentric. <laughs> But I think maybe in a unique way, because I'm not at war in the sense that people are trying to kill me and I'm killing them back, but you know, dealing with other humans and their children and you know, other people just like me and trying to save them, mm. it's really taught me that the less it's about me, the better. Mm-hmm. And the more I put aside my own ego, even though I am remembered to have a big ego, um, <laughs> the more I put aside my own ego, it turns out, babies do better and that's the most amazing feedback loop in terms of positive feedback because the less it's about me the better the babies do and you know sometimes it's only through being a servant that you can actually lead Mm -hmm. and it's ironic but now that I'm older I'm seeing it Mm -hmm. that just give of yourself and it's, it's just what my parents told me when I was a kid that maybe I didn't really understand I'm starting to understand now is that the more that you give the more that you're given. Absolutely. I, I completely so believe that. So I, I, have a, I have a question. So like when we're talking about you've been in practice for 19 years and you've kind of evolved, was there like a significant situation or story that triggered that evolution? Well, I think, I think first was being a parent mm-hmm. uh, and that sort of set up the context for my um, openness. But there's definitely one story mm-hmm. that, um, and I know that she'll be fine with me telling the story because we've talked about it many times. Uh, the boy's name's Brian. Mm-hmm. And I was a young buck fresh out of training, you know, thinking I was all that. A young buck, huh? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, I, I came to Texas, my first job out of training, and, you know, thinking I was going to come save the world. And, you know, I learned a lot of hard lessons. And, but I still believed, I believed in doing the right thing. And, you know, I believed in, you know, basically what my parents had taught me. And so there's this baby that was born in another city. And I won't tell you all the micro details because maybe it's not that relevant, but 
the baby was born with half a heart and had some problems inside the heart that 20 years ago, and frankly, even today, most people believe it's lethal. There's nothing you can do. You just need to let them die. And the mom was like, over my dead body, are you letting my child die? Transfer me somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And they're, you know, they ex- tried to- Like, exp- why won't you even try? Just try. Yeah. If he already has a death sentence, just try. Yeah, and they had all the reasons why, and they quoted her the data from the research papers and everything. So whatever. So they send Brian to our center. And again, I'm fresh out of training, so I don't know any better. And, you know, I'm the surgeon running the program, so I come and see Brian in the, in the neonatal intensive care unit, and I meet the mom who at the time was barely 20. Gosh. Maybe, maybe 20. I, I don't remember the exact age, but young. And... You know, we had discussed in our conference, you know, the basically the same conversation that they had had at the other center, and the conclusion was the same. There's nothing to do. Transplant won't work because by the time you get an organ, it'll be too late, mm. et cetera, et cetera. So I come and talk to the mom. I'm telling her the whole thing. And she looks at me like with this most incredulous look, like I think with her mouth open, mm-hmm. looking at me like she doesn't even believe what I'm saying to her. Yeah, like. And she says, you know, I go through the whole thing. I do it as a parent, though, not as a cold doctor, but as a parent, you know, empathizing with her. And she says, Dr. Salazar, I understand everything you just said to me, but won't you even try? Mm. Magic words. And that, for me, is where that expression came from, mm. came from her. And Just try. Won't you just, won't you even try? And she says, I understand all the risks. Yeah. Would she even try? Mm-hmm. And I looked at her, and I looked at the you know the, the the staff there in the NICU, and I said, "You understand the risks?" She's like, "Well, of course I do. I'm not an idiot." Yeah, like my kid's gonna die, my baby. Yeah, yeah. And I said, "Well, if you understand the risks, yes, I will try. Mm. Yes, I will." And so everybody thought I was crazy. I was going to say, how did your team react to that? <laughs> My boss oh, was freaking Buck out. <laughs> Mr. Buck and Bronco, what is it, young Buck out of training? It, they were like, abort mission. <laughs> like, yeah. what are we doing? So, so I tried, and it worked. Mm. And it changed me forever. That case changed me forever. because, And I've told this story to hundreds, if not thousands, of moms since then. Mm-hmm. Brian's story. And I can pull up pictures on my phone right now of Brian because she sends me pictures three times a year. How old is he? Four times a year. He's 18. He's 18. Yep. And he's a tall, strapping kid. He rides motorcycles. He goes hunting. Oh, my gosh. Seriously? Ah. (laughs) No, he's... No. I know. I get it. I get it. He's a normal kid. Jorge rode motorcycles as well. He's normal. And that's okay. He can do that now. He's living. He can do that. He's living. And so it taught me a very powerful lesson that if I give in to preconceived ideas, then none of the kids have hope. But if I'm willing to consider it, mm-hmm. you know, and yes, I, there is some personal risk to me, I guess, in terms of my outcomes or my numbers or what have you, but I think it's worth trying. And so now, 19 years later, after having operated on thousands of Brian's, thousands, mm-hmm. I can tell you with a straight face that we can save the vast majority of these children, even when they've been turned down by all the other centers, and, and not all of the kids survive, that is true. But the vast majority do. And when I say the vast majority, I mean like 95 to 97% of that group. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, the ones that are like in the normal risk group, essentially 100%. So 
So why wouldn't I keep doing that? Yeah. So I think that is different. Our philosophy is different. But it's been reinforced by many, many years of positive feedback. And the good news is, is that over the years, we just kept getting better. Right. Because we were in uncharted territory, and we had mm-hmm. no idea. We were doing stuff that everyone said was impossible. You shouldn't do it. It was dangerous, you know, blah, blah, blah. Why would you bother doing that? But our commitment to finding a solution helped us find a solution. Yeah, just trying. And we are so much better now, even versus five years ago, even mm-hmm. versus 10 years ago. We're so much better so that now, like I told you earlier and how I talk with the families, like I already know what to do. I already know what to say. Like I can feel it in mm-hmm. my bones. So I just do it. I don't have to think about it anymore. Like when I talk with the families, I know how to connect with them. I know how to show them that I really do care. Mm-hmm. I know how to put them at ease. And it's not any kind of magic trick. It's just sincere. Right. And it's not like it's a it's a rehearsed no. yeah. you know, script that you have for them. It's I, just something that you naturally feel it's very organic and you connect on a very personal level i couldn't have said it better i think the key is when you walk in the room don't have a script yeah yeah just feel just talk talk to them you feel them Mm -hmm. just like you feel you know your own emotions yeah when you when you have to leave at the end of the day and you've just experienced all of this the new family who's come in with this diagnosis then from there visiting all your other patients who have already had all of these surgeries, then from there going into surgery, dealing with that operation and everything that follows that. So when you have to leave at the end of the day and you have to come home to your own family, what is it like transferring or turning, you know, is it like a switch that goes off? Like how do you leave behind this intensity and try to exist in more normalcy that we're used to. Yeah, well, as you know, it's difficult. Mm -hmm. And it's difficult to be in war all day long and then come home and pretend that you're normal because you're not. You're definitely not. And I know that I'm not normal because I don't live a normal life. I don't live, I don't deal with normal things. But I've learned to put it aside. Okay. And so when I come home, as you know, I'm still taking calls from the hospital and I'm still like living in this like dual worlds or dual universes Mm -hmm. that sometimes are in competition with each other. But I've learned to find that balance. So it actually does not cause me emotional stress. And that's a learned behavior because you can imagine you don't like on day one, you don't know how to do that. But I've learned to put it aside when I'm not doing it, Mm -hmm. but then very easily take it back up on my or upon myself whether it's in the morning or even if I have to go back in in the middle of the night. And I've learned how to manage my own emotional reactions, mainly because in the operating room or at home or wherever, I've learned that my reaction to the problem can make it much worse. Absolutely. And so by channeling positivity and not in kind of some sort of delusional way, but by, by channeling positivity, that that can result in much better outcomes and that creates a feedback loop that mm-hmm. feeds my soul, that feeds my little machine inside of me mm-hmm. to keep doing it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I imagine it's habitual. So I see it. I see the. I feel like even though you set it aside, it always lives with you. Of course, it's a part of you. And people see it. Yeah. Kind of wonder why I'm quiet. Yeah. Kind of wonder why Some maybe people, I'm a little withdrawn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like why is Jorge not 
present. Why is he a little distant? Yeah. They don't realize that I just did seven cases. Yeah. And I had three new diagnoses. And, yeah. and then you have mom's crying. You're living through chaos. You're living yeah. through a sense of trauma. You're bearing your cross. You know, I'm not going to explain it to every single person I come come upon. But, but I do just give myself a minute mm-hmm. to to lay it aside. I think you do well. And then I take it back up the next morning when everyone else is asleep. <laughs> so we we really like to focus on that golden nugget, mm-hmm. the takeaway, that mm-hmm. moment when you knew that, I mean, it, for what we've been discussing, it's the moment you knew you would begin to heal. But I think in this situation, like the moment that you, or how you know you're going to be okay and the longevity of a career like this and, and who you are as a person, because mm-hmm. Some people could look at you and look at this story and just be like, there's no way he can last doing this. Like, it's too much. It's just, there's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of, you know, um, emotion that goes along with this. He has a wife. He has multiple children. Like, there's just no way. So what do you think that golden nugget is? When did you realize throughout your career that you knew you were going to be okay in this field that you were in? That's an interesting question. So it was pretty early on, and I've always been someone who just naturally believed. And like like when we were skiing as kids, me and my brothers and I, you know, we would just jump off cliffs, figuring <laughs> that we would figure out a way to land, or motorcycle riding. <laughs> I guess I'm, I've always been a natural risk taker, but I've learned to walk that fine line between risk and danger and I know where that edge is. I, I feel it in the operating room, um, outside the operating room. Like, like I can see things five steps ahead now, maybe even more. And some of that's based on experience, but some of that's just based on my own sort of inherent predisposition or, or my own inherent sensitivities. And I think the reason why, well, there's many reasons why I'm very confident that this will work for me in the long term, mm-hmm. but it's because it actually works for me. Mm-hmm. Like. I'm not suffering mm-hmm. zero. Now, is it hard sometimes? Is it stressful sometimes? Sometimes, sure. But I literally feel like the luckiest guy on earth every single day. Like I jump out of bed every morning, excited to go to work. You're very peppy it's, in the mornings. It's like, yeah, a little bit too loud sometimes. A little, I would a little loud. Yeah, that's great. That's but fine. it's because we get to go save babies every day. Mm-hmm. Like who doesn't want to do that? <laughs> now, if you're going to work every day and the babies are all dying, well, that's a totally different conversation. But but I'm here to tell you that's not true. So early on, you just knew. There wasn't really a defining moment where, like, I love the the just try story. I think in your yeah. career, we can focus on that. And well, say Brian's that. mom definitely opened my eyes to a whole new way of thinking. And had that not happened in that moment, and mm-hmm. had I not been in a program where they allowed me to try, because right. they don't always let you try. Had I not been there, then my entire career would have been very different. Okay, I probably would have been more rank and file more toe the line, more do what the professor says, because you have to be in the right circumstances Mm -hmm. to catalyze that Mm -hmm. kind of a transformation, because it was a transformation. Of course. And what I'm doing is very much against the current. Mm -hmm. I'm swimming against the current here. I'm going against the grain, whatever expression you like, in terms of the way most programs are run. Mm -hmm. I act with with a tremendous amount of freedom that is not necessarily afforded to all people in my situation. But because the outcomes are so good, Mm -hmm. people see that, and so therefore they support it. So I think that 
the, the Brian story. So where, right. she, where she said, yeah. just try. Just try. I think that you can apply that to everything. Yeah. Well, actually, like, she said, won't you even try? Mm, that's sweet. Mm. That's kind of like, very emotional. Yeah. And it was like the mother cooing when her baby's born. I apologize for my coup. The birthing <laughs> coup. The birthing coup. No, it's very special. And I think that that, that, um, that realization you had as a surgeon in that moment could have also been applicable to other things in your life. Like, for example, wouldn't you just try to go on a blind date? And then it changed your life forever. That's right. Because that's how we met. Because if you're if you're ruled by fear and controlled by it, you actually shut yourself down to possibility. And by being open and acknowledging your fear, of course. Mm-hmm. Don't look away from it. No, we but by transcending it, it mm-hmm. that opens doors that you could never have imagined would be opened. And for instance, when somebody asked if I wanted to meet this girl on a blind date. Wonder who that was. Just kidding, it was me. Well, thank you so much for sharing a part of your story. Thank you. And giving us that insight. I'm sure that a lot of people out there listening have been able to pull something special because I think this is this is a world that's very um, specialized. It's not something that people have a lot of experience with. And, you know, they just see the surgeon and they think, oh, here's this guy just doing his job, X, Y, Z. But in reality, there's a lot that goes into that. So we thank you so much. Thank you. We did talk today about uh, congenital heart defects, and um, we'll post and add some information about those who have more questions below in the links. And if you ever have any questions, feel free to get a hold of us directly. We'd be happy to help. Thank you again. Thank you. Thanks for having me.